Jordan and Gretzky, Serena and Ruth Remembering great ones is easy to do But what about the no names who spent their whole lives Long stepping footballs and catching sack flies They're guys, remember that guy some guys now they drop it off got a little screen action set up for bush oh look at him ball fumble texas has got it he was trying to get it back to brad walker who was trailing if he does it's remember that guy the show where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present hey there folks it's me one of your hosts james gonna lateral this intro into open space now and hope someone's there Diaz here to receive that lightning struck on that unfortunate play, but we don't have lightning with us today. We have the thunder of that USC backfield. Please introduce yourself. God, I wish I was Lendell White. That'd be a fun life to have. I, I bet he has internet right now because me, the very special guest Xavier, does not and has not for three full days. Well, with Xavier, with all of that free time with that internet, I'm sure there have to have been some wonderful things making memories for you. So, one thing that happens when you don't have internet and you don't have TV is you can't watch any sports. So, all of my memories are from this past weekend when we went to go watch the New York Liberty versus the Las Vegas Aces. And... The Liberty did put a massive beat down on the Aces because Sabrina Ionescu went nuclear, uh, yeah, which was very fun to watch. And then she did. And then Brianna Stewart outscored the the Aces by herself in the second half, eighteen to seventeen, which is one of the craziest stats I've ever seen in a professional like sporting event. Xavier, um, I've got some more stats for you actually from this game that I, I thought really emphasized quite how much of a beatdown it was. Because I don't want to pretend after all the shit that I talked like it was not a fucking beatdown. In fact, it was the fewest points that the Aces have scored in any game this season. Actually, it is the largest margin that the Las Vegas Aces have ever lost by since moving to Las Vegas in 2018. Beyond that, it was actually the greatest losing margin for a team in the WNBA's history that at the time of the game had the best record in the league. In the history of the league, it was the single worst beatdown that the top team has ever endured. Asia went two for 14. She took the elbow from Jonquil Jones. Everything that the Liberty shot went in, absolutely nothing could go in for the Aces. In many ways, you'd think it's the worst possible game that I could go to uh, for a Las Vegas game, but there is one last number and that is uh, 11,418, which is the crowd that we were a part of, which is a record in Barclays Center for the New York Liberty. And I got to say, I mean this with all the sincerity in my heart, greatest 39-point blowout I've ever attended in my life. I had such a fucking blast. The atmosphere was so nice. I, I expected it to be big because it's a big game between the top two teams in the league. But I wasn't 100% sure what to expect because I hadn't been to the Barclays in a while. It was packed. Everyone was loud. There were celebrities. Tyrion Ree was there. I have was... never seen you happier in your entire life than when Tyrion Ree was there. And I was at your wedding. I mean, don't tell Caitlin that, but it, it was, <laughs> I, I did, I did freak out a little bit, like, and then did take a picture of Tyrion Ree from across the arena because we could see him. Because again, he is, 
He's the greatest soccer player I've ever watched on any of the teams that I support because I have seen Messi live as well. So I have, I think by default, I have to say seeing Messi live, he's the greatest player I've ever seen live. Although he does have exactly as many World Cups as Thierry Henry does. But Henry is my favorite player that I've ever watched live. And sometimes I just look back at his old Arsenal highlights and it's ridiculous what he did to people. Like it just, it doesn't seem like you should be able to do that. So seeing him just randomly at the Barclays Center, because he's apparently friends with Mourinho Johannes, is ridiculous. It was just a really fun experience. It seems like everyone had a good time. Uh, and I'm really glad that we went. That crowd was electric. I've been in the crowd for some very big Sixers playoff games. I would say that crowd was just as loud and engaged as any playoff crowd I've ever been a part of. One of the things that stood out most to me was how delightful, and I don't know if this is something that the Liberty have organized or if this is just a whole bunch of random dudes all had the same idea. But there's a whole bunch of guys in our section that were dressed up like the Statue of Liberty. They, in like very cheap, cheap outfits. I but, think they were oh, friends yes. who couldn't get four tickets together because very frequently they were all conversing with one another. So I think it was just like, okay, we got some like all roughly in the same section and they were incredible. They were fantastic. I mean, the Sons of Liberty, I don't know if you want to make that an official fan group. The Children of Liberty, the Daughters, let's get everybody involved, but... No, that was that was an electric crowd. And yeah, I mean, Sabrina had like three heat check threes in a row at one point. It was it was, it reminded me of watching Wyatt Temple team, except if the Temple team around Wyatt was also good because it was like not only was she that much better than everybody else, but everybody else was good to like it wasn't she wasn't surrounded by scrubs or playing scrubs like it, it it was extremely impressive, uh, and I'm really glad we went. Hopefully, we can go see another game at some point. But the other thing I wanted to bring up real quick was Joe Klecko, first Temple Owl into the NFL Hall of Fame as a player. Very much long-awaited. Should have been in way before that. I mean, there's there's plenty of Hall of Fame offensive linemen who say that he's the greatest they ever played against. His versatility is unmatched. Pro Bowl and All-Pro at three different positions on the defensive line. He's one of the reasons why sacks started becoming an official stat. The reason sacks exist is because of the two New York teams, because at the same time, the Jets had the sack exchange and the Giants had Lawrence Taylor. And the NFL realized, okay, people are really interested in sacks. We should actually count them. Unfortunately, they started counting them the year after Klecko had 20 and a half sacks along with Gastineau also having over 20 sacks. But just the highlights of them plus Rashan Salam and uh, Marty Lyons together, just ridiculous. He just seems like such a humble and happy dude. And I'm pretty sure I talked about how he like cried when Joe Namath came to his door to tell him that he got inducted into the Hall of Fame. To see him actually get in, phenomenal. Along with one of my other favorite Jets of all time, Darrell Rivas. Yay, things coming up for the Jets. That never happens. Thrilled for the Jets. Thrilled for you. Thrilled for Temple. But no, when you brought up the thing with the that they weren't officially measuring sacks until after his 20 and a half sack season. One of the silliest things in sports to me is that we can very clearly document stats in certain games, and yet we refuse to go back and correct it. Like, there's never been a quintuple 
double in basketball history, except for the fact that Will Chamberlain did it like seven times, but because we didn't count blocks and steals back then, I guess we're not allowed to. It's absurd. It's absurd. I say give Joe Klecko his sacks. Give him all of them. Give him a few extra ones, too, for having to wait to get into the Hall of Fame for so long. He's if, probably knocked I, a couple people down since retiring. Load him up, but no, over the moon to, to see another Al into the Hall of Fame, this time based on their playing career. What other Al's are there? So, what's the, uh, Pop Warner, I think, is in the Hall of Fame. Pop Warner, right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That guy. Bruce Arians eventually will be as well, so. Well, Diaz, this Temple Owl has made memories for you. Certainly there's someone else alongside him that has done the same. Uh, not alongside him at Temple, but alongside as a Philadelphian, as, as a recently welcomed to Philadelphia, Philadelphian. In fact, just 24 hours before recording, Michael Lorenzen had not started a single game in his new home of Philadelphia. It was one of those games where he walked a guy in the first inning, he walked a guy in the second inning, had a lot of long at-bats. He's threw like 60 pitches through four innings. And it's not until you get to the end of the fifth that you realize, oh shit, they just showed the line score and the Nationals still don't have any hits. Just I love when a random regular season baseball game goes from just that to all of a sudden one of the most important games you've ever watched in your life. Yeah, right around the sixth, seventh inning, it starts getting real. It's just one of those things that we love about baseball because one thing Harry Callis, the late great Harry Callis, would always say is anytime you go to the ballpark, anytime you turn on a ball game, you never know what's going to happen. You might see something you've never seen before. And while I definitely watched every pitch of Roy Halladay's postseason no-hitter, I missed his perfect game because the Flyers were playing game one of the Stanley Cup at the same time. When Kevin Millwood had his in 03, the no-hitter, I didn't get to watch that. Cole Hamels, his no-hitter on his last days of Philadelphia Philly. I think there was a barbecue that I was at. Didn't really get to watch that game. But to be locked in on this and all of a sudden, this random guy who, again, two weeks ago, you were lamenting the fact James, that you thought that that Michael Lorenzen would be the... That was our worst-case scenario. And then he outdid himself with Jack Flaherty, Michael Elias did. Flaherty's been fine. And Michael Lorenzen, free from the stink that has currently washed over Birdland, gets it done, makes history. And one of the coolest things was, so they had a camera basically fixed on Michael Lorenzen's mom and his wife once it started getting real. And... Their reactions, they're so nervous, and then you're so nervous for them because, I mean, let's be real. Michael Lorenzen, this is probably going to be his only no-hitter. He's probably not going to get another opportunity like this. As we said amongst ourselves last night, it was very reminiscent of talking with our friend LJ Raider about the Edwin Jackson no-hitter. We're like, we're letting this guy run it out as long as he possibly can. Well, so Rob Thompson said in his press conference after, and it's one thing to say, it's another to actually walk up those steps and do it but he got it to 3-2 on the last at bat on dom smith and no it wasn't dom smith it was um it was somebody else doesn't matter who it was that's the motherfucker that got out but it got to a 3-2 count and thompson said if he lost him if he walked him i was gonna get the bulletproof vest ready because i was gonna go out and i was gonna get him so who knows if that would have actually came to fruition but incredible home debut for michael lorenzen 
We also had uh, Wes Wilson making his MLB debut at age 28, hitting a home run in his first at bat, which is another thing that doesn't happen very often in baseball. Somebody actually ran the math and said the odds of having a no-hitter and the guy who gets a home run in his first at bat in the same game is literally one in a million. So thought I was tuning into a random Wednesday night Phillies game. Instead, I saw a game that is literally one in a million. And how can one in a million do anything but make memories for you? Couldn't agree more. I mean, how can you not be romantic about baseball? Oh, right. When the owners decide to, like, exist uh, in any this, capacity. This is, this is that stench. This is that yeah. stench. I was trying to foreshadow a little bit because I assumed we were going here. Yeah, no, it stinks like shit here in Birdland. It stinks to high hell. So I've recently switched to largely listening on the read. It's just a little less stressful for me. It's only one sense engaged at a time. And because of this, I did not pick up for a while until this week when some news broke that uh, Kevin Brown, largely the main play-by-play guy for Masson after doing it for the radio for a couple years prior to that, basically with the team since 2019, commentating almost every game. And he hadn't been around for a little bit. And I guess I'd noticed in like the video highlights the next morning, oh, yeah, haven't heard him, but they cut up the feeds. You figure you might just miss it. No, it turns out he had not been on television since Thursday, July 23rd. People would shame on me for not noticing, but it came to a head the morning of August 7th. That is when rumors started to swirl here in the Baltimore area that Kevin Brown had actually been suspended indefinitely due to comments that he made at the beginning of that game, which was in Tampa against the Rays. Coming into that game, the Orioles had a chance to win a series and had also already this season won three games at Tropicana Field. They had not won a series in 16 attempts, and they had won three games at Tropicana Field in the previous three years. And there was a graphic worked up that said, to this effect, this is how bad the Orioles have been, largely to highlight in Kevin Brown's here, you know, pre-written, approved by the studio, game-opening bit, to talk about how excellent the Orioles have been against Tampa this year, despite my own expectations at all times. Apparently, though, even that mention of the Orioles' failings over the last couple of years was enough for John Angelos to awaken from his slumber that he had largely been since saying that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. would not have approved of people asking him about the stadium lease on an MLK Day press conference that he hosted. That's like the last stupid thing that he did. And that was pretty dumb. It took us a while to move beyond that one. And I don't know how long it's going to take us to move beyond this because this is the third time in the last couple decades that an Angelos has, you know, more or less punished a broadcaster for not being exclusively a raving fanatic for the team. And like, I'm sorry, people don't want to listen to a person like me call games. They want to hear good professionals like John Milner used to work for the Orioles or Gary Thorne, who used to work for the Orioles or Kevin Brown, who hopefully still works for the Orioles. This goes beyond like just the broadcast. A couple years back prior to, I believe it was the 2021 home opener hours earlier that day, they have fired the PA Ryan Wagner because he had tweets that were like saying, Hey, Glad to not be going crazy announcing games to myself this year after 2020, where he had to announce to empty stadiums. That even then was too critical for John Angelo, so he fired him. Just the fact that on a day off, on a fucking day off, we had just swept the Mets. Like that happened in the middle of the Aces Liberty game, and it was a really nice consolation prize. I was feeling pretty fucking great about the Orioles coming into Monday morning, and John Angelos got whiff of that, and then he decided that that was not something that was allowed to happen. And he was just 
a giant fucking idiot who has ruined the vibes in this city. We've dropped a devastating 2-1 series loss to Houston, and it's all going off the rails, folks. It's all over. There's no but more James, rails. James, he'll make it up to you by creating Camden Crossing, by stealing people's houses with public assistance. Yes, he's uh, talking about, he hasn't signed the lease. He's probably not going to sign the lease. I'm more convinced than I've ever been that he truly is going to try and move them to Nashville, Tennessee. You guys can say whatever you want. I I'm telling you, that's how I feel personally. And no, his, his plan instead is to build this giant, like 60 acre thing around them. I'm going to go ahead and say, if he thinks the city is going to eminent domain that, Baltimore City does not have the budget to eminent domain the fucking property values surrounding Camden Yards because it's property around a ballpark, you dumb shit. It is valuable. That's why other people bought it. Fuck you, John Angelos. Sorry, this is why we have an explicit tag. Well, James, it sounds like you have a little angst and anxiety about the fact that Birdland as we know it in Baltimore might be going away. I do have this fear of, of winds of change that might uproot my whole sporting landscape. And with that mindset now put in place for you, dear listener, Xavier, would you love to bring up what we are gathered here to talk about this week? So uh, this week, wanted to do something a little different. Last week, I spoke about realignment and how something crazy was probably going to happen by the time our episode was posted. And it didn't take long for that prophecy to be fulfilled as the Pac-12 is now the Pac-4. For anyone who missed it, Oregon and Washington at the morning where they were about to meet to sign off on the Apple deal, they said, actually, peace out. We're going to go take half money from the Big Ten to become the 17th and 18th teams of the Big Ten. They would rather have half Big Ten money than still be in the Pac-12. And then swiftly after that, the rest of the four corners schools, Utah, Arizona State, Arizona, followed Colorado's path to go to the Big 12. And that means the teams left behind are Stanford and Cal, you know, two of the richest schools in the country and also two of the biggest Olympian producing schools in the country. And then Washington State and Oregon State. And there have been some talks about Stanford and Cal to the ACC purely because their academic profile. But it sounds like those didn't really go anywhere, got voted down. So now no one knows what those remaining four teams are going to do. And I thought it'd be nice to memorialize the athletic accomplishments of those left behind four. So instead of picking a sport, I had us all pick a school to bring a person from. And today, I wanted to recognize Washington State. Wazoo, correct? Uh, the Cougars? Yes, Wazoo, located in Pullman, Washington. It's a small town of less than 30,000 or so. And it's just about eight miles from the Idaho border in Moscow, Idaho, home of our friend uh, Dan O'Brien. Go Vandals. Yes, go Vandals. It's always been the little brother school at the University of Washington, which has twice as many students, an endowment that's four times the size and located right in Seattle. But the Wazoo Cougars have produced a lot of great professional athletes all the same. James mentioned him last week, but Jason Hansen set numerous records at Pullman, was elected to the College Football Hall of Fame. There's been Eric Garcia, the guy who replaced him in Drew Bledsoe, the throw in Samoan Jack Thompson, John Olrood, and even Spurs legend Aaron Baines. Ooh, very nice. Also, goddamn, the throw in Samoan is a good nickname. 
Thronesbone is a very good nickname, and he was second on my list when I, when I said narrowing it down. But there is another Wazoo legend that I really wanted to get his due. And today I want to talk about Bernard Lagat. Before we get into Bernard, and I'd love to hear about Bernard, did you list Clay Thompson and those alumni? I did not list Clay Thompson. Okay. I just wanted to say for the record that Clay Thompson went to Wazoo. See, that's the thing. I took out the best of like the main sports. So I, that wasn't even on my list for like who could be a guy. Like even Drew Bledsoe was kind of too high, so I cut him off earlier. But I was focusing on the guys of Wazoo, but there are some like actual stars from Wazoo as well. So Bernard Lagat was born December 12, 1974 in Cap Village, which is near Kapsabet Town in the Nandi district of Kenya. He graduated from the Coptel High School in 1994 and then went to Jomo Kenyatta University of Agriculture and Technology in Nairobi. However, in 1996, he decides to leave Kenya and he moves to America to attend Washington State University. He chose Wazoo over places like Harvard and Ole Miss because his running coach in Kenya knew a man named Dr. James Lee, who was one of the assistant coaches at Wazoo who would then later become the head coach of the track team in 98. And it didn't take long for Lagat to become a dominant middle distance runner at Wazoo. From 1997 to 1999, he won 11 championship races against Pac-10 and Mountain Pacific Sports Federation competition, three titles in the 800, the mile, and the 3,000 meter at the 1999 MPSF meet. He was the MPF MVP three times, Pac-10 Outdoor MVP once, 11-time NCAA All-American in cross-country and track and field because you can become an All-American in all different disciplines. It's not just based on years. So 11-time NCAA All-American. And in 1999, he won the NCAA Indoor Mile, Indoor 3000, and the Outdoor 5000. And this led to him being named uh, the NCAA Indoor Male Athlete of the Year and the Pac-10 Men's Track and Field Co-Athlete of the Year. The same year, he competed at the Universidad Games in Palma de Mallorca, Spain, where he won the gold in the 1500 meter. So dominant career. He's, at this point, one of, if not the best track athlete in all of America. 2000, he graduates from Wazoo with a degree in systems management. And just a few months later, he's off to Sydney to compete in the Olympics representing Kenya. If I may interject, I'm curious... What was it about Washington State University? So, like I mentioned earlier, there was a Kenya pipeline to to Wazoo just between these coaches. Um, I didn't know if he'd gotten an opportunity to try anywhere else or if he had, as you've described, just been funneled straight there. Yeah, so he, he had scholarship offers at Ole Miss from Harvard. He had other offers to different schools, but because of this, like, coaching relationship, he wanted he ended up going to Wazoo. Could you imagine going from Kenya to Boston winners if you went to Harvard? Like, is it? I don't <laughs> think it's even worth the education at that point. I, I don't know how different I, uh, Eastern Washington yeah, State winters, winters are, are from bad. Boston winters. <laughs> Pullman winters are not easy. I mean, it can't be as cold, though. I assume you got like, mountains, though, out there. You do have that's mountains. True. That's true. Regardless, he's. That's why it's indoor. One of the. In the winter. Yeah. <laughs> He's one of the best track athletes in America, graduates, and he's immediately off to the Olympics. In the 1500 meter, the favorite 
is a man named Hisham El Gouraj, who is Moroccan. And at this point, he's the best in the world, the 1500. And the Moroccan team is essentially built around trying to protect him by essentially blocking off anyone who could get around him and letting it so that he can coast for a little bit and then turn on at the end. I love that very much. That's very cycling. They call them the team tactics. Yeah. Even with that, a Kenyan does pass him, but it's not Lagat. It's his compatriot, Noah Geni, who takes gold. But Lagat does finish third right behind El Garage and gets the bronze in his first Olympic event, just a fresh third. out of college. And he's already a third place champion. Yes, he is already a third place champion. And this is just the beginning for Bernard. The next year at the World Championships, he moves up and gets the silver right behind El Garage. Later that same year, he set the Kenyan national record with the 1500 when he ran 32634, finishing second behind El Garage again, and get, ends up ranked number two in the world by the end of the year. And he does eventually pass him and become considered the best in the world. Finally, we get to the 2004 Summer Olympics. It's expected that Bernard's going to win, but unfortunately he does finish second behind El Gourage and get just the silver medal at the 2004 Olympics. So now he's gone bronze and then silver. I'm starting to believe in our almost two-year journey at this point that it almost fundamental qualification for Guidem is an absolute inability to win games in which you are favored. I don't think it's necessarily that. I think it's just that there can't be, oh yeah, and Brianna Stewart won the championship all four years at UConn. Wow. Like it is memorable, but for the story. You can you need- can win a close game, but it, like anytime we hear like, oh, someone was the favorite going into this. Oh, they were like really heavily favored. They were expected to clear the field. That's the setup. Xavier loves a good, unfortunately, has just come over and over. That's true, but there is more for Bernard Lagat here because the very next year, he becomes an American citizen. USA! USA! All of a sudden, I care much more about this story for some reason. (laughs) All of a sudden, I have an opinion about track and field. Patriotism intensifies. (laughs) There actually was some controversy, like, briefly after that, where... They were debating certifying some of his Kenyan records as American records. Because, <laughs> because, that's, so, that's so fucking good. Because he immediately would have had the American record in multiple things. Everyone's like, well, he is American now, but he wasn't American when he set these records. So maybe we wait, but it's okay because he then does immediately break them all in his first races as an American. He continues to excel at the 2007 World Championships in Osaka. He became the first athlete to become the world champion in both the 1500 and the 5000 at the same World Outdoor Championships. And he is just absolutely crushing. And does, does he have any sprint game or is he just these like middle to long distances? He, he's, ju- he's just middle distance. He's okay. 15, 1500, 3000, 5000 in the mile. He goes into the Beijing Olympics 2008 again as, you know, a, a heavy favorite. But for some reason at Beijing, he's just not, you know, at his game. 
and he does not run very well at all. Because it turns out he had a badly injured Achilles tendon, but he really had wanted to compete at the Olympics, so he was trying to push through it. You know, he said it was the biggest disappointment in his athletics career, but he just couldn't run. You know, this is a discipline of very close finishes. And if you're not at your best, you were going to lose badly. And if you have an injured Achilles tendon as a runner, that is going to be, you know, even more pronounced. Those injuries are really a runner's Achilles heel. <laughs> meta. It's, it's, it's super meta when we're literally talking about the injury to the Achilles heel. Art historically, it would be referred to as a very hyper-realistic description. A hyper-realistic uh, metaphor. So even with that disappointment, Lagat, after he heals up, he's still great. And he sets more American records. That's a record of the indoor 5,000 uh, in 2010. Broke his own 5,000 outdoor record later that year. He's either winning or finishing second or third in a lot of different events and goes to the Olympics again in 2012. This time, finishes just off the podium, fourth in the 5,000 meter. And at that point, he's 38 years old, so you expect that's probably going to be it. But as we've seen in so many of our favorite guys, he still had more shit to prove. And in 2016, he became the oldest track athlete in America to qualify for his fifth Olympic games at the age of 41 uh, at the Rio Olympics, because he's still the best in America at 41 years old. At this point, has that become an indictment of the country? Like for the, Maybe. the fourth one, it's still a feel good story at 37. Like that's one you could be happy about if 37 is like, you know, one of the guys on your track and field. It, it starts to feel like an indictment of the country's track and field system at 41. So if it makes you feel better, there is other athletes who are like good in America at this time because at the Rio Olympics in the 5,000, another American is also born in Kenya named Paul Chalimo does finish second with a silver behind Mo Farah of Great Britain. Our good friend Bernard Lagat does finish fifth behind... Those two, Hago Skrbiwit of Ethiopia and Mohamed Ahmed of Canada. But again, he is 41, significantly older than everyone else in the field. And he ran a season best in that Olympics, finishing just two seconds off the podium and 30 seconds faster than some of the other competitors who are much younger than he was. Pretty good. With that, though, he did decide to retire at the age of 41 after his fifth Olympics. And now he lives in Tucson with his wife, Gladys, who he met while attending Washington State, where he continues to run and is a track coach. But you know, I, he is one of the few Olympians ever from Washington State. I looked up, there's only like six of them. Three of them are rowing. One is baseball, a guy named Mike Kincaid, who I believe was on the Orioles at one point in 2000. I believe so. And then a boxer from the 50s. So not a lot of Olympic history out in Pullman, but they do have this one guy from Kenya, came to America, to Pullman, Washington, loved it so much he became an American citizen and competed at multiple Olympics on behalf of America as the oldest track runner that we have. 
Love the American spirit. Love the Washington State spirit. Go Cougs and go Bernard Lagat. Xavier, I, I need to say I love Bernard Lagat, but you left out an entire second act to this career that is absolutely fascinating for Bernard Lagat. Please go ahead. I'm sure that with my limited internet, I definitely missed something. Okay, so 2016, Bernard retires from competitive mid-distance running. But Bernard still has a lot more to give to the racing world. Bernard serves as a pacer for the first two events to ever break the two-hour marathon. These don't count for official record-keeping stakes. But he transitions to be able to run marathons himself. Ran his first marathon at the New York City in 2018. Two hours, 17 minutes in his first marathon. I mean, that's phenomenal wow. because he's a middle distance runner. He has never been a long distance runner. And for anyone who runs, they will tell you they are not the same skill set. They're, they're entirely different. And uh, by the way, it's roughly a five minute, 14 second pace that he does the marathon on. God damn. But so he, he acts as the pacer for first Nike organizes a project called Breaking Two, which is basically let's take the three most elite marathon runners in the world. Let's set this event up where they get different pacers at different parts throughout the race. And Bernard Lagat was a pacer in the first attempt. And Eliud Kipchoge ran in two hours, 25 seconds for the Nike attempt. They organized a, another attempt, which was called the Ineos 159 Challenge. And in that attempt, also again serving as a pacer, Bernard Lagat helps Eliud to become the first person in the history of the world to run 26.2 miles in less than two hours. <laughs> there is something that is just very deeply meta about speed running a marathon. Right. And, and yeah. And it's, it's similar to with the speed running community. You know, there were illegal cheats used in this run, which was having people who are only running eight miles set a pace for you so that he knows what pace he needs to go. It, um, it was tool assisted. That's the tool assistant. Exactly. It was a, but, but Bernard Lagat is certainly not a tool, but no, that, yeah, that whole, that whole second career fascinated me. Like, okay, I got done with running. So now that my running career is done, I guess I'll just run farther. Diaz, I, you've done such a good job appending Xavier's presentation that I just, I have to hear what you have ready for us now today. Yeah. So a great presentation by Xavier. I'm glad that I was able to help out a little bit at the end of it. The school I want to talk about is Oregon State. I've always been fond of Oregon State because back when I had the NCAA football video game, there were a lot of teams that I would play dynasties with. Florida International was the worst team in the game, so I love taking them. Sometimes you want the challenge of taking a smaller team in a bigger conference, and I always love doing Oregon State for that. They had an electric backfield. They had Jaquiz and James Rogers, the brothers, Two running backs, both just quick as hell coming out of the backfield. Get Sean Canfield, who was a very respectable quarterback for them. And, I mean, they're not only stacked at the skill positions, they're also stacked on the special teams. You had Johnny Hecker just absolutely booming them for the Beavers before going on to a long NFL career. And they had a place kicker once who knocked the hell out of Christian McCaffrey. Goddamn right he did. You're goddamn right that Golden Spikes Award winner did. That Golden Spikes Award winner, that 2018 Most Outstanding Player at the College World Series, and that 2018 College World Series champion, Adley Rutschman, of course. 
but most known for tackling the shit out of Christian McCaffrey. Um, he, he has estimated because he gets asked about it all the time. He's like, I'm pretty sure he doesn't know who I am. And it's so funny to think that because Adley, one of the emerging stars in baseball, certainly on the map of the national consciousness, but yeah, to another star in another sport, like barely a blip on the radar. To him, Adley Rutschman is just Christian McCaffrey's frustrating non-touchdown return that he should have had. Yeah, like at the very least, the kicker and Adley Rutschman are separate entities in his head. For sure. Adley Rutschman made Oregon State history when he tackled Christian McCaffrey. But in terms of great catchers at Oregon State, there's actually a predecessor that I think might just edge out Adley for greatest catcher in Oregon State history. And that's why I want to talk about Mitch Canham today. I do not recognize that name, so I'm intrigued. Well, let's start back at the beginning. Mitchell Dean Canham, born September 25th, 1984 in Richland, Washington. He is the oldest of three sons born to Mark and Kim Canham. Mark served in the Navy, so as you might expect with the military family. Mitch had to move around a lot as a kid. He had to move 13 times total as a child. With that being the case, there's only one constant in life, and it's baseball. Mitch would always talk about when Mark would get home from work, long day of work, he would still take the time to pitch batting practice to him. And then his younger brother, Dustin, who hated baseball, but was glad to help and had like a very tight bond with his brother. Dustin would shag the fly balls in the outfield. That's true love. True love, brotherly love. But there wasn't a ton of love, unfortunately, between Mitch's parents. They do get a divorce when he's fairly young, but that only serves to strengthen the bonds between Mitch and Dustin. Again, Dustin there every time that he wants to practice baseball and as they get shuffled back and forth between mom and dad, the one constant is that they have each other. So these brothers are real close. But as we said, Mitch is more of the athlete. He takes more to sports and thankfully for, for Mitch's development, when he gets in high school, they do finally land at Lake Stevens. Lake Stevens is where he's going to be for his entire high school career. And he's kind of like the most annoying person in high school. He's top five in the graduating class, serves in student government. He volunteers at the elementary school. He's a letter winner in football, wrestling, and baseball. Everybody loves him. Just the most annoying person to possibly have in your high school class. He's Reese Witherspoon in election, except he also bats like 300 at the catcher position. Right. Well, I mean, in high school, he's batting even better than 300. He's, That's he's true, yeah. up. And also, I mean, uh, the other thing is in, in high school, he's not a catcher like at all. He's all around the infield. He plays some short. He plays some third, plays some center field, does a little bit of everything. And the fact that he's able to do a little bit of everything with this good bat caught the attention of Pat Casey, the head coach at Oregon State. He's just as impressed by all of his off-field accomplishments as well. And on the basis of that, he says, I might not have an elite prospect here, but I do have a guy that I want rounding out my team. I want him to be part of our culture here at Oregon State. And so he offers him a scholarship, and Mitch Canham goes to Oregon State on scholarship. Before we get the spring season, in the fall, uh, on his first day of class, Mitch is on the way to his Psych 201 class. 201 because, again, honor student. Got a little bit of a jump start there. He's on his way to class, and he gets a call from his dad, and his dad is informing him 
that his mom has passed away from a drug overdose. Really tough news. And to get it on your basically first day of being away from home and being away from your family, really tough. And, you know, you're going to look for any kind of distraction as possible after that. With that being the case, he buries himself even more in the pursuit of baseball. And he knows freshman year, I'm probably just going to be a bench piece, but I want to make myself as useful to the team as possible. I want to be able to contribute in whatever little, little way that I can. So he goes to Pat Case and he says, hey, if you don't mind, I'd love to learn some catching. Get me behind the dish. I don't care if I see it a single inning of game time, but... I know I, I can help out during practice if I can catch. I can help take extra bullpens. I want to do what I can to help. So he, you were introducing us to uh, a kind of psychotic person then because catching famously like the most damaging to you thing you can do in baseball except for maybe pitching, but also do it for absolutely no guaranteed meaningful time at any point. So, you know, some people, they, they do self-destructive behavior by drinking or drugs. But he chose to do self-destructive behavior by being a catcher. It takes all kinds. Well, I think it's admirable. And the thing that maybe gives him a jump, if we think of it from that perspective, is he spent the first 18 years of his life not catching. So that's that much more wear and tear that he's been able to save on his knees, on his back, on his body. So from that perspective, maybe it can help a little bit. Freshman year, he's not a natural. Let's, let's put that out there, too. It's not like he got back in the haunches and like it was like, oh, this feels right. This feels good. To hear him tell it, he said, my first few practices, I was the worst of the bunch. The only thing that I was good at was turning around and running to the backstop for all the pass balls that he let by. So, you know, he's humble. And his freshman year, he's really humble. Uh, he only appears in six games, splitting time between first base and catcher. Goes one for six with a single, four strikeouts in those six at-bats. The team, not so hot. They go 31-22, and 22, but they only go 10-14 and 14 in Pac-10 play, and they do not qualify for the postseason. 2005, the catching position is now open due to graduation, and with his hard work, Mitch has asserted himself as the best catcher on the team. To hear Pat Casey say, the book tells you how to hit, how to catch. None of that matters if you don't have the right guy. We asked him to be a catcher and a leader, and he was the right guy for the job. His first year as a full-time starter, he hits 333 with a 428 OBP and 560 slugging to go with nine homers and 42 RBI. It's a pretty good slash line, one of the best slash lines on the team, but it did pale in comparison to the 412 average, 508 OBP, and 597 slugging percentage that was put up by Jacoby Ellsbury, his teammate. Oh, okay. In that 2005 Fucking Jacoby season. Ellsbury. I mean, Jacoby Ellsbury, in and of his own right, may be a guy one day, but he's not a guy today. Mitch Cannon and, is a guy today. And also, I will never vote for Jacoby Ellsbury. I also will not vote for Jacoby Ellsbury. So that is a, uh, a tough position for him. That's fine. I mean, we can just go ahead and ban Jacoby Ellsbury mid-episode if we want. Go for it. It's done. He's banned. Jacoby Ellsbury, banned. But we're not focused on Jacoby Ellsbury. We're not focused on the individual achievements. We want to focus on the team. Oregon State, much improved this year. They go 46-12, and 12, including 19-5 and 5 in conference play. This leads them to a number seven national ranking and their first NCAA tournament appearance in 19 years. They play host in the first round in the Corvallis region. 
They win a tight one in their first game back, 4-3 over Ohio State, but then they blow out St. John's in the next two games to advance to Super Regionals. Our boy Mitch is named the most outstanding player of the regional. So first year as a starter, instantly contributing. In the Super Regional, they match up against USC. They win the opener. They drop a heartbreaker in extras in the next game that would have sent them to Omaha. But in the rubber match, they win 10-8, and they advance to their first College World Series in 53 years. You've got Jacoby Ellsbury, the hot bat. You've got Mitch Canham behind the plate. We're gearing up for a good run, and we lose 3-1 to Tulane in the opener, and we lose 4-3 to Baylor in extras in the next game. And just like that, double elimination, Oregon State is knocked out. Diaz, I'm going to say you preface this by saying this guy is going to be a more impressive catcher at Oregon State University than Allie Rutschman, and it's not looking great so far. Thankfully for Mitch's story, we're only halfway through right now. It's going to be tough, though. Jacoby Ellsbury does get drafted in the first round after this, does take the money, does go pro. So now Mitch is kind of left behind as the veteran presence, the leader on the team. And in 2006, you know, they got a taste of their first College World Series in 53 years but as paul pierce might say they want the full load mitch for his part falls off a little statistically only hits 299 for the season with a 390 obp 496 slugging to go with seven homers and 54 rbi again great numbers for anybody you're gonna have behind the dish just not quite up to his standards from the previous season he continues to be a very solid reliable catcher oregon state wins the pac-10 title again and they go to consecutive NCAA tournaments. In the Corvallis Regional, again, they're not worried about fucking regional at this point. Wright State, Kansas, Hawaii, doesn't matter. By a combined 28 to 9, they win all three games and they advance into the Super Regional. In the Super Regional, it's a tight one. They're going against conference foe Stanford. They win game one, 4 3. Coming back off of this, you might expect a real tight game in game two. You're not going to get it. You're going to get Beavers 15 to nothing over the Cardinal. Our boy Mitch goes two for three with five RBI in that game. And the Beavers are going back to the College World Series. Just think about it logically. You have Beavers versus a tree. There's That's only a good be- point. And it's like, literally genuinely. just one tree. Everything comes up Beavers, chopping down the tree. And it's just one tree, too, because it's not like the Stanford Cardinals. It's the Stanford exactly. Cardinal. Yeah. There's no forest. one tree versus an entire team of beavers. It's it's hopeless. no contest. Who would win, like one tree or a hundred angry beavers? The beavers aren't angry though. They're celebrating. They're going back to the College World Series, back to back years after only being once previously in the entire history of the program. They've learned their lessons from last year. They're not going to let it happen again, and they lose eleven to one to Miami in the first game of the College World Series. Get absolutely smacked around. Yeah, a hurricane does beat a beaver, so this does also track. So far, all the elements are holding up. The person in your office pool that picks the tournament just based on mascots, they're looking great. It's holding true so far. And Oregon State now knows, like, you know, they remember from last year, you can lose one, you can't lose two. And they know they're going to have to win four in a row now if they want to make it to the best of three College World Series final. The first of the four that they need to win, they face Georgia. They play front runner the whole game, never trail, and they win 5-3. Next game, Miami again. 
And this time, they turn Mother Nature on her head, dominate the Hurricanes with an 8-1 victory. Mitch goes 3-4 for four with a double and two RBI in the game. They built a much more successful dam in between the two matchups. Much more structural integrity, and they're going to need it going into what they're going to need to do in these last two games because now they've got the number one overall seed, Rice, that they need to beat in back-to-back games. Ooh, Owls versus Beavers. Owls versus Beavers. The Owls are a little more aerodynamic. You know, they can fly away. Beavers, some sharper teeth, could go both ways. On the ball field, though, these Owls, the Rice Owls, a juggernaut offensive team all year. They average seven and a half runs a game coming into this. And Mitch, behind the plate, simply doesn't give a fuck. He's going to call masterful pitches from his staff. In the first game, he's going to lead the Beavers to a 5 nothing victory against Rice. They'd only been shut out once previously in the entire season, a 3 nothing loss to Houston. And also in that game, Mitch gets an RBI in the most baseball guy way possible, which is a bases loaded hit by pitch. Take it for the team. Get the run in. We love to see it. And it sets up now the winner-take-all match the next night. They know we can hold this Rice team down for one night. We're not going to hold them down for two nights. So that's why it's so important. In the top of the second, it's still nothing-nothing. Mitch does his job, pops a sack fly, gives the Beavers the one nothing lead early. It's a shame they could only squeeze across one more. They ended up not even needing it. They only needed that first run. They shut out the Rice Owls again on back-to-back nights. A team that averaged seven and a half runs a game coming in that had only been shut out once previously all year gets shut out on back-to-back nights thanks in no small part to the games called by Mitch Cannon behind the dish. They now advance to their first College World Series final in program history, and they got a best of three against UNC Tar Heels. The stakes here are obvious. They can win a national championship if they can do it. It will be only the second national championship in the history of Oregon State, the first being the 1961 men's cross-country team. So if you think running in and of itself is not a sport, as I do, as a person who runs, this would be their first real championship. That's so funny to hear after we just talked about an Olympic track athlete. Sorry, Bernard, it's not a sport. It's not a real sport. He's saying... Cross country is just like running, which is still like shots fired. Look, I'm, I may be trying to lay the groundwork for my litigation case later, but <laughs> look, look, we're not too worried about that right now. We're worried about this College World Series. Game one against UNC. It's a tight game back and forth. UNC takes the early lead to nothing. Oregon State goes up 3-2. UNC draws it back even. And now it's 3-3 in the bottom of the eighth. UNC's up to bat. Leadoff man hits a triple. So there's a runner on third with no out. This is going to be real tough for Mitch to navigate. And the most reliable catcher that Oregon State has ever had. Let's a ball go straight through the wickets. It's a pass ball. The runner comes in to score. And that proves to be the winning run. As UNC takes game one 4-3. This could be the what am I even doing here moment for Mitch Canham. I haven't played catcher my whole life. Now I'm in the College World Series. I just fucked it up for my team. The yips could set in to a lesser guy, but Mitch is not a lesser guy. Game two, real tough start. UNC goes up 5 nothing in the first three innings. Mm. And it's looking for all the world 
like the Tar Heels are just going to romp to a championship. But in the bottom of the fourth, Beef start chopping away. They get it to 5-3 with runners on the corners when our boy steps up to the plate. Just as what happened to him the previous night, the catcher lets a pass ball through. So the runner from third comes in to score. Runner on first advances to the second. It's now 5-4. Mitch works the one-out walk. Next man up strikes out. And then with runners on first and second with two out, there's a three-run homer. And the Beavers take the lead 7-5 with a seven-run bottom of the fourth. The fifth comes and goes. No more damage. But the Beavers pour on four more in the bottom of the sixth to now go up 11-5. In the end, Mitch bats 3-4, and the Beavers take that game 11-6, and they set up a winner-take-all the next night. In the bottom of the fourth, the Beavers strike again. They score the first two runs of the game in the bottom of the fourth. UNC comes back with two of their own in the top of the sixth. It's a back-and-forth game. Bottom of the eight, Mitch steps up to the plate, and he grounds out 3-1. First out, second man lines out, and it's looking like we're going to go to the ninth, still tied at two. But get a two-out walk, get a two-out single. Now there's a little pressure. First and second, uh, routine grounder hit the second base. And he quite simply Chuck Knob blocks that shit. Throws it wide at first base. It's not even like, a, oh, he had to slide his feet a little bit. It's hit right at him. He takes two hops, has all the time in the world, and just pulls it. Throw goes wide. The backup is right there, though. Right field's there doing the backup. Runner's coming home trying to score. Play at the plate. Dramatic slide. He's in. Beavers take the lead 3-2. Now we're going top nine. All we need is three outs, and the Beavers are national champions. Get some traffic. It's runners on the corners. There's two out. And Mitch Canham fouls up the perfect pitch to get a weak fly ball to center field. They settle under it, and the Oregon State Beavers are champions once again, the 2006 national champion Oregon State Beavers. I so thoroughly love and respect the way that you framed specifically how the catcher is responsible for the game ending fly out. I mean, listen, it's not the pitcher. It's the catcher visualized the pitch. The catcher visualized the pitch. And like, I I truly, I'm being a little tongue in cheek, but catcher has a lot to do with that shit. Like Carlos Ruiz uh, is tied for the record for most no hitters caught in baseball history with four. And I'm not saying four is a lot. And I'm not saying that it's Carlos Ruiz is the reason why those no-hitters happened. But what you are saying is chooch. I am saying chooch, and I'm saying Mitch, and I'm saying Mitch Cannum because, you know, he's done it now. You win the championship as a junior. 50 wins is a program record. And, you know, Mitch gets drafted by the Padres coming off of this, gets drafted in the 41st round. But he says, 41st? I don't know how that sounds. I think I might have a little more shit to prove here, even after winning the first national championship in 53 years, or in, in 43 years, 45. There we go. 45 <laughs> years is, is why I went into broadcasting. I, I know pictures and I know words. I don't know numbers. He comes back for his senior year, and, like, you won the national championship. The, the absolute best that can happen is that you stay even, and every other outcome is worse. But, you know, Mitch is trying to build up his own stock as well. His numbers improve senior year. 317 with a 443 OBP and a 495 slugging. Eight homers, 52 RBI. The team, though, 
does take a bit of a step back this next year. They finished the regular season at 38 and 17. That sounds great. What doesn't sound great is that they go 10 and 14 in conference play. And there's dropping games that they shouldn't be dropping. What it basically sets up here is your classic eye test versus results debate when you get to these selection committees. We know Oregon State won the national championship last year. We know that they've been majorly disappointing this year. They dropped a ton of games they shouldn't have in conference play. Do we give them a shot? Controversially, they do get their shot. But they're going to have to go a long way to prove that they belong. They get a three seed. And unlike these past two trips, they don't get to host the regional. They have to go to Charlottesville, where Virginia is playing host. Their first game, they go against Rutgers. And real no drama to it. They win 5-1. Going against Virginia, tight game. Goes extras, 10th inning. Virginia scores first in the top to go up 4-3. Down to their final out, our boy Mitch Canham steps up, and he rips an RBI single to keep the game alive. It's now 4-4. We go to the 11th. We go to the 12th. We go to the 13th, where Virginia finally puts up a three spot. Oregon State is unable to answer, and now their backs are up against the wall again. They get a rematch with Rutgers. They win again. They beat them 5-2. Now they're going to have to win consecutive games against Virginia in Charlottesville if they want to make it out of the region. And they lead the whole way in both games. 5-3, 7-3, no drama. We're going to the Super Regional. Oregon State maybe shouldn't have gotten in, but guess what? You shouldn't have let them get in, and you shouldn't have let them get hot. We advance to the Super Regional, where they face Michigan. They get to play host in the Super Regional, though. So after having to go on the road for the regional, they're now back at home for the super regional. And game one against Michigan is an absolute dogfight. The Beavers putting out Jorge Reyes on the mound. Pitches a gem. He goes seven scoreless. Zach Putnam, though, is pitching an even better game for the Wolverines. Beaver-Wolverine feels like a pretty even matchup. They've got some claws. We've got some teeth. They're both vicious. And we have two absolute aces on the mound in this game. Putnam gets through the first five and a third perfect before he issues a one-out walk, but he gets out of it. He issues another walk in the eighth inning, but he gets out of it. Through eight, he's still pitching a no-hitter. Top of the ninth. Strikes out the first batter. Then we get a walk. Then we get a bunt to advance the runner to second. Very interesting choice by Pat Casey to essentially say, we haven't got a hit off this guy all game, but I'm willing to put that runner in scorer position. For the first time in the game, put a little extra pressure on him, and let's see if we can't get that single to bring home the run. With Mitch Canham looming in the on-deck circle, Joey Wan steps up the plate, and he gets the Beavers' first hit of the game. He gets a single through the hole on the left side of the infield. It gets to left. Throw to the plate is very close, but only because of Mitch Canham's directing, coming from the on-deck circle to tell the runner which part to slide to. The runner is in. They beat the throw, and the Beavers, on their first hit of the game, take a one nothing lead in the top of the ninth. We're setting a new precedent here. Give people credit for things where 90% of the work was done by someone else, and I do kind of appreciate it. Just like, no, it, it wasn't the slide. It wasn't the hit. It was Mitch Cannon in the on-deck circle giving instructions. Management is very important. Look, management is essential. And Mitch Canham's just a natural when it comes to these in-game decisions and, you know, how to really guide a team. He delegates um, the decisions the right way. 
He's a great delegator. You know, if I, if, if I didn't say, they close it out in game one. And now they just need to win one to advance back to Omaha. And in game two, they get a few more hits. They end up with eight. Two of those delivered by our boy Mitch. And it's just a no doubt of the whole way. They put up a four spot in the bottom of the second. They put up a three spot in the bottom of, of the fifth. And they ultimately see it out to an 8-2 victory in front of their home fans to advance back to Omaha. The prize is in sight. They can claim back-to-back College World Series. Game one, they go against a favorite at the College World Series, Cal State Fullerton. It's never an easy matchup. But Mitch notches two hits against Cal State Fullerton. The Beavers put up runs in the first two innings and never trail en route to a 3-2 victory. Start off this College World Series on a little better note than the 11-1 loss that they started the previous one. Game two, we got another one that uh, could present a little bit of a mental hurdle. They're going against Arizona State. Arizona State, another Pac-10 team. They won the conference championship. They swept Oregon State 3-0 in their only meeting in the regular season. So this could be a hurdle for the Beavers to get over. For Mitch, he struggles in this game. He goes 0-5, but his team picked him up, put up six runs in the first two innings. They're up 12-1 through six. And Arizona State pulls a few back late, but it doesn't really matter. Oregon State wins 12-6. Game three, simple now for Oregon State. You just got to win this one, and they get to go to the best three final against the winner of the other side of the bracket. They go against UC Irvine. It's a real tight game early, and it's a two-out throwing error by UC Irvine that brings in the first run of the game for Oregon State. That brings our boy Mitch to the plate. He's going to leave a little less doubt on this one. He's going to hit his first home run at the College World Series with a two-run homer. Let's put the Beavers up 3-0. Part of a three-for-five day for our boy Mitch Canham with three RBI total. And it's more than enough to see the Beavers through 7-1. They are back in the College World Series. And they are back against those UNC Tar Heels. We have our Spurs Heat matchup. This could be UNC playing the role of the Spurs, agonizingly close. You're up 5 nothing with the chance to close it, and you don't see that one out. UNC's, you know, they got some shit to prove themselves. It didn't show in game one, though, because UNC gets fucking worked 11-4. to Mitch only goes one of two, but he has two RBI. And now we're one game short of pulling off the back-to-back. In game two, UNC strikes first, one nothing after one. Mitch leads off the top of the second, rips a line drive down the left field line. Third base knocks it down, but isn't able to hold on to it. That's the only reason it's not a double for Mitch, but it is a leadoff single. Doesn't matter what base you're on, though. You can be on first, you can be on second. If the next guy hits a home run, you get to come all the way around. It's exactly what happens. Oregon State goes up 2-1. They tack on one more, but they uh, leave two runners on. Could come back to cost them. The next inning, Mitch is again up to leadoff. He again hits a leadoff single, this time up the middle. He comes around the score to make it 4-1. And as it would turn out, that run that Mitch scored would be the winning run. It is a 9-3 final as Oregon State, after being perhaps the very last team to get into the field, they go on a miracle run and they go and win consecutive College World Series. You let him in. You got to deal with the consequences. They pulled a LeBron. They coasted through the regular season knowing that 
hey, we've already won the title. We know what's important. We'll get the benefit of the doubt. And while everyone else is like working hard and expelling all their energy during the regular season, we're just biding our time. Look, rest in the laurels. You know, don't play catcher for your first 18 years. Let other people take that wear and tear on their bodies and then slide right in and lead your team to its first two national championships in baseball in program history. For his efforts, Mitch is named to the All-College World Series team, and he's also named third-team All-American. If you're going to go out, why not go out on top with consecutive championships and a third-team All-American? The decision to come back not only paid off for Mitch with that championship, it also paid off when the Padres decided to pick him again, but this time in the first round. With the 57th pick, which is just a really funny thing to be able to say when you can have so many supplemental picks at the 57th pick. Yeah, competitive pick balance. It's still in the first round. No, we love competitive balance. We love Mitch getting that first round pool bonus. And after telling such long tales about his college successes for you, I'm not going to build out the drama for Mitch's professional career. Across eight minor league seasons, he hits 253 with a 339 OBP and 358 slugging, 23 homers and 238 RBI across 542 games played all up and down the minor league system. Does get to AAA a couple times, but despite his best efforts, that's simply the end of the road for him as a ball player. But after his professional baseball playing career has taken him from Oregon State to the Eugene Emeralds, the Lake Elsinore Storm, the San Antonio Missions, the Portland Beavers, the Midland Rockhounds, Sacramento River Cats, the Memphis Redbirds, the Long Island Ducks, the Northwest Arkansas Naturals, the Omaha Storm Chasers, the Harrisburg Senators, and then finally Lincoln Salt Dogs. It is time for Mitch Canham to hang up his cleats and to call it a career as a ball player. It's not time, though, for him to hang up his uniform because baseball is a wonderful, silly sport where the coaches still get to wear the uniforms. Mitch Canham is going to slide right into some managing. In 2016, he manages the Clinton Lumber Kings, who are the low-A affiliate of the Mariners. They're based in Clinton, Iowa. He guides them to 86 wins in his first season as a manager, and they advance to the Midwest League Finals before falling 3-1 to Great Lakes. 2017, he gets promoted up to the high affiliate, the Modesto Nuts in Modesto, California. Year one, he goes 74-68, and and he takes the Nuts all the way to the California League Championship, where they do win, and he is named the California League Manager of the Year. 2018, a winning record again, not as much postseason success. And in 2019, he gets to call up to double A. He's going to manage the Arkansas Travelers, who play in North Little Rock. He leads them to a first half season championship when, due to unforeseen circumstances, he is forced to resign as the manager. He's forced to resign because Corvallis, Oregon, is calling him once again and it is time for him to return home to the Oregon State Beavers. They just lost Adley Rutschman a year ago to graduation, so they need to bring in a stabilizing presence, somebody that knows how to lead a program. And with Pat Casey's retirement, they had one interim year for the 2019 season, but on June 13, 2019, Mitch Canham is hired as the head coach of the Oregon State Beavers. 2020, they start 5-9, and nine, then COVID happens. So 
Don't need to worry about anything after that. The season ends, blah, blah, blah. Might have been good for Mitch to get that learning experience because he comes back 2021, his first full season as a manager. They go 37 and 24, and they advance to the NCAA regionals. They get a bid. Second year, they're going to finish second in the Pac-10, go 48 and 18, and they'll advance out of regionals this time. They make it to the Super Regionals, don't quite make it to Omaha. And then in 2023, they go 41 and 20, 18 and 12 in conference. Again, qualifying for the NCAA tournament, but not quite enough to get through to the Super Regional. But in recognition of his success, Mitch Cannon's contract was extended this previous season. He will be employed by the Beavers until 2029. So Mitch Canham, it all starts in 13 different places that he has to live as a child. He grows up, finally finds a home at Oregon State, wins the two national championships, ends up coming back home to Oregon State. What a guy. And you know, as I mentioned at the start, he couldn't have done it without the help of his brother, Dustin. There was no real good place to fit this in, but it is worth mentioning. So I just want to mention it as a bit of a footnote on Mitch Canham's career. Their father, Mark, was military. He was in the Navy. Dustin followed in those footsteps. He would enlist in the Marines and he would be serving in Djibouti when in 2008, as Mitch is getting his minor league career started, Dustin dies due to a, quote, non-hostile accident. Fellow Marines said that he was being punished for accidentally chipping another Marine's tooth. Uh, he was made to do a ton of very physically exerting tasks. And as a result of that, he passed away. I didn't know anywhere good to fit this in. And I'm Ma- glad you prefaced it because I was able to stop myself from making a Djibouti joke. No, it's, uh, there, there, there's a lot of jokes to be made about Djibouti, but there's no jokes to be made about U.S. military trying to cover up what is pretty clearly alleged by his fellow Marines in very specific terms with our lawyer Xavier looking at us very intently. It is alleged by fellow Marines that he was hazed for accidentally chipping another guy's tooth. And as a result of that, he uh, succumbed as a result of his punishment. So... I I hate to end it on such a down note, but with Dustin playing such an important role in Mitch's life, I I felt the need to to tell a whole story there. But, you know, the story's not finished, thankfully, for Mitch. And may he continue to make great memories for all of the Oregon State Beavers fans, whichever conference they may be playing in going forward. He's gotten two of the championships to only add at least one. So if I can return to my thesis statement, James, I don't know if that makes him a better Oregon State Beaver than Adley Rutschman. But dare I say, it does make him a guy or one. I am laid low by rings. Reigns culture reigns supreme over all of us. But I know the band's not out on the field, but we do have Stanford and Cal left, James. And I'm very curious which way you're going to go. Well, I, you guys left me with a tough decision between those two after taking Wazoo and OSU. And so I decided, por que no los dos? Because I am the most college sports agnostic of the three of us. But the, the one thing that I do like very much about college sports is rivalries. I don't think I'm alone in this. I don't think I'm special for saying this. It is frequently cited as the best thing about it. And Pac-12 had some all-timers. 
I think USC UCLA is probably the most like aesthetically satisfying Jersey matchup in all of sports. Possibly it's very high up there. And I mean, Oregon OSU was violent enough that it was referred to until 2020 as the civil war. When we realized that's maybe not great, but there is only one rivalry in this division, in this sport that is able to, in 2007, go toe to toe with the NFL in a naming rights battle and win. Because while we certainly are not going to say the name of the NFL championship game here, very often when people want to talk about that, they will use the euphemism, the big game. However, to be clear, better be using lowercase for that because the big game, capital B, capital G, refers specifically to the Stanford-Cal football matchup, which is the oldest in the West, having been contested since 1892. It is, you know, this conglomerate of unstoppable Bay Area financial power just pouring into these football programs for over 100 years. What's more, it has also affected the naming conventions of all of the other Stanford-Cal rivalry games. So, for instance, in uh, soccer, you've got the Big Classico. In basketball, you've got the big tip-off. In hockey, you have the big freeze. Volleyball, the big spike. Water polo, the big splash. Do we even have a guess for what the big sweep is? I'm going to guess that is all of our favorite sports that we watch once every four years. Curlin? I was hoping that would be the guess. No, unfortunately, it is Quidditch. So because J.K. Rowling's a piece of shit, we're not going to talk about that any further. But this is if you'll pardon the joke, a capital B, capital D, big deal, this rivalry. And I wanted to examine it further. And so the guy that we are going to use as our lens for this today, coming from the world of golf, is Ann Walker. Ann Walker Ranger. Ann Walker, Texas Ranger. No, she's not from Texas. She is not from the Bay Area either. She's about as far as we can get from the Bay Area, but a very reasonable place to have a golf origin story because she is from Scotland course where the modern game originated in the 15th century and then many hundreds of years later on january 14th 1980 ann walker is born she's born in south lancashire county area uh, she grows up in the family farm in a very small town called stonehouse and at the age of 13 now in 1993 she gets a set of golf clubs for her birthday and so she just starts going to the fields of the farm driving balls she does not have uh, a Dustin to go like shag her flies. So she does go and pick up the golf balls. And this is, as she gets better, a great place to be growing up. It's Scotland. Of course, there are golf options. Uh, there are four different 18 hole courses and two nine hole courses that she has her pick from. But she goes to the nearby Strathaven Club. And this is where she's going to start her youth career. By 1997, she's won a Welsh Women's Open Amateur Stroke Play Championship. And she does come in second in the 1997 Scottish Girls Championship. There's a friend and rival, Vicky Lang, playing around the same time. And this is no shame losing to her because Vicky's winning the under-18 title from 1996 until 1999 every single year. So she's very good. But the two of them together, they are two of the top young golfers here in Scotland. And so they get the opportunity at times to meet with other Scottish golfing stars, someone by the name of Belle Robertson. Belle Robertson at the time, has a friend named Barbara Bentley, who is in the San Francisco Golf Club. And she's told her that University of California, Berkeley, drew a fortress, Cal going forward, is really trying to get their golf program rolling. And they think they are ready to start trying to recruit some international scholarship players. And Walker initially is like all set to go to University of Edinburgh. But when Robertson basically calls together a group of the young Scottish girl golfers and is like, hey, who wants to go to California? Walker's hand shoots straight up and like 
it's a choice between Scotland and California. I kind of get it. One's a little better than the other. Just a little bit. One is at the very least a lot warmer than the other. If we're going off, why would someone go from uh, Kenya to Washington? This one I get just a little bit more. When she gets here, Cal Men's Golf, they'd made a couple like championship appearances in the 1930s and 40s, and they had finally started to come to life here in the mid to late 90s. Uh, the women's team has been bad or non-existent entirely up until this point. So when these two come in, they are expected to like be the lifeblood in this. And right off the bat, these two are stars for Coach Nancy McDaniel. Vicky wins the very first tournament that they appear in. Anne gets her first win at the 1998 BYU Invitational. And by 2000, the two of them together with their coach have the team in their first ever NCAA regional appearance. Then the next year, it is their first ever championship appearance. Then 2002, we're getting towards the end of the college career here. Anne gets a really big local win, the Bay Area Classic. This is her senior year now. And this kind of is the cap to a career that just gets a host of accolades. She's a three-time All-Pac-10, three-time All-Pac-10 academic. She's been team captain for the last three years. And to kind of culminate with all of this after the Bay Area Classic, she wins the 2002 Pac-10 medal as Cal's top senior female athlete. So this is end of her illustrious career at Berkeley. And now comes the big question for a lot of you know, college athletes in Anne's position. Do you go pro? At the same time, Vicki Lang did, and she spent a little over a decade in the LPGA as just like a solid mid-table competitor. Anne is thinking about it now. In 2001, she had found a little bit of success in Wales once again. She won the Welsh Amateur there, and she sees her name on the trophy with a couple other like Scottish stars and thinks, you know, maybe this is helping me visualize that I can make it. But, you know, thinking about the kind of itinerant life that she might have otherwise, she decides ultimately it's something that you do or do not have in you. And she knows she doesn't, but she does have something else, an opportunity that has been presented to her around this same time. The coach at Cal, while we're getting towards the end, they pull her aside and they say they're going to have an opening on the coaching staff the next year. This is a direct quote from Ms., uh, Mrs. Walker. Apologies. Uh, let me try and do an accent just for fun. Hmm. Maybe it was the Scott in me, but I figured I could either play professional golf and lose money or coach and start making money. That was on the Saturday and I started on the Monday. I mean, look, whether you're Scott, whether you're Californian, I think the one thing we can all agree is bank account go up better than bank account go down. We like to see bank account go burr. So she is now an assistant coach. The team makes their third straight NCAA finals appearance. And thanks to Linda Huarte, I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly, program actually gets their first ever individual title. Now we mentioned, as Xavier said, like Cal and Stanford, a lot of Olympians, a lot of national champions. The women's golf program at Cal was not that prior to this, but she has come in along with Vicky, both their you know contributions directly on the links and the contributions they're making to the other players that are on the links now just continue to build. So through 2006, while Walker is an assistant coach, they make their fourth, fifth, and sixth appearances in a row in the finals and gets all the way up to the rank of associate head coach now from 2007 and 2008. And it is this point that the headhunting begins. And so she's going to trade in the blue and gold for uh, a different tone called Yale blue and gold. That is the official color of anybody? Going to guess Cal State Fullerton. Very close. Xavier? Yale blue and gold and close to Fullerton. My first thought was UCLA, but now I'm thinking Irvine. 
It is UC Davis. The UC Davis uh. Aggies are Yale blue and gold. That is their colors there. And now their head coach at this point is Ann Walker. She's been brought on at a really exciting time because like they're a mid-major. They were a program that didn't even start until 2005. But the school is in the midst of a transition from D2 to D1. So in many ways, incredibly exciting opportunity. In many ways, it's the same kind of fear you might have as becoming, say, the manager of an expansion baseball team or something like that. And it turns out none of this matters to Ann Walker in the slightest because she, along with star Demi Runas, who she has at this time, immediately win three Big West titles. Upon their arrival in the conference, just three straight Big West titles for the women's golf team. Walker wins Big West Coach of the Year three times. She always has either the team or an individual in the NCAA championship for those three years. And Runas twice wins the Big West Player of the Year. So comes in and just immediately turns this program into a mainstay in the top 20 ranked schools in D1. They get as high as 13th at one point. And so now she's got all of the success with like relatively limited resources altogether. You know, going back to her time in Scotland, Scotland is enough of like a fertile breeding ground for golfers that big D1 schools will send scouts out there. And here at UC Davis, I mean, she's done an incredible job, but she simply does not have the resources that some of the bigger schools have. However, a bigger program is going to come along now. And in July of 2012, Walker announces her return to the Bay Area to become the head coach for the Stanford Cardinal. Excellent use of record scratch. <laughs> You're probably wondering how she got here, listen. <laughs> uh, yeah, she's yeah. crossing the line. She's going from Cal to Cardinal. And to be clear, she's not the first person to end up in this situation. We have had instances of Cal Cardinals. NBA's Mark Madsen, one of the best examples. He had his college career at Stanford, pro with the Lakers and Timberwolves. And then he starts coaching with Stanford before eventually he gets hired by Cal as their head coach. He luckily had some company when he got hired by Cal because Sharman Smith played at Stanford and then in the W, rose up the coaching ranks, including some time at Stanford, then 12 with Cal as an assistant coach, goes away for a little bit, then comes back to Cal as the head coach in 2019. Right now, both of Cal's basketball coaches played at Stanford, which is wild. It's probably easier for like coaches and also for people who are not from the Bay Area mm -hmm. to cross that divide. Because for them, it's just the school that's in the same city that I'm like, or not the same city, but like the same general area that I'm already comfortable with. I was there with a the pamphlet for a couple of years. It's not like I grew up hating Cal and wanting them all to die in a fire. Well, I mean, then you get guys like Fran Dunphy, who's what? Is he just a Villanova away from the whole Big Five? Villanova and St. Joe's, I guess. St. Joe's. Just trying to no cross off the entire list. In addition to the Cal Cardinals, we've also had some Stanford Golden Bears. Uh, as of 2023, with the hiring of Troy Taylor, a Cal alum heads both the football team and the baseball team for Stanford. Dave Esker is the one over there with Stanford. And of course, we have a third one in Ann Walker. It is a strange transition for her. She tells one story that I absolutely love where, you know, she's gotten the hiring now. So she has to go in and get gear. And so she goes to the Stanford bookstore and is like, I've worn blue and gold for decades at this point. Her husband, or sorry, not husband quite yet. Fiance right now at this time, I believe. You know, his hands are full. She has nothing in her hands by the time they get to check out. She's like, I can't put this cardinal on. She does end up getting a gray sweatshirt with a Stanford logo. That is the compromise that she's initially able to make. A gray sweatshirt that she does claim to still have to this day. The golf program at Stanford is renowned because you've got people like Tiger Woods and the men's golf club has historically been very successful. But 
when Walker comes in, Stanford at this point has 130 NCAA championships as teams and over 530 for individuals and gets there. And the only one of their 36 programs with zero titles is the women's golf team. So 2012 is huge for her. She's got this six-week hiring process that had been running in tandem with her getting a green card, planning her August wedding to husband Chris Gundling, that I mentioned previously. And later that year, actually, right around the time she starts her job, she is inducted into the Cal Hall of Fame. And uh, right after that, Stanford makes it to the championship. 13th place, it is their highest finish since 2007. They have three invitational wins that season. It's the most since the 1980s. She has a freshman star in Mariah Stackhouse, who is their first All-American since 1994. And the biggest difference that she mentions going forward from UC Davis to here is like, because she wasn't able to do all that recruiting there, a lot of the golfers that came to UC Davis, it was still about building a lot of fundamentals with them and helping them learn how to be golf athletes. Whereas the ones she's getting here at Stanford, like they have come to her as golf athletes and she is now a performance coach. It's a completely different job as she says it, but she's still really good at it. It turns out after a strong 2014, she has Stackhouse like work on her short game for a little bit. And in 2015, that is enormous because Stackhouse's short game when they make it to the first ever final in the new match play format against Baylor is what ends up getting her a win on the last two holes to force a 19th hole playoff. And then she wins on the 19th, getting the school's first ever golf title. And Stackhouse is going to give way to new stars. The players are going to change. The rivalry is going to change also because it's actually going to ramp up. They had to this point not had their own big blank. And that changes in 2018, a business person from the Bay Area gets Cal and Stanford golf together and pitches a co-ed match play tournament that they can call the big match. The rivalry now has this new outlet. Cal takes the first two in 2018 and 2019. The women's team is still great. They do enter their fifth straight match play final in that time. The fifth year in the top 10 that year. College golf pauses for a little bit because of that whole COVID thing. But when Ann Walker and the Cardinal retire, they are even better. 2021, the new stars in Stackhouse has been Rachel Heck, who wins an individual title. Walker wins her second coach of the year. But this is all still prelude to the best yet golfer that she's had. Xavier? Rose Zhang. Rose Zhang enters the picture in 2022. Once again, an individual title for one of Walker's players, in addition to Walker getting the coach of the year, as she did in 2015. 2022, 2023, the most recent season. Rose Zhang, under the tutelage of Ann Walker, because if we're saying that a catcher is making the call for that, yeah, I think it absolutely give Ann Walker the credit for Rose Zhang becoming the first ever golfer with two individual titles back-to-back. I, I was waiting for this the whole time because I'm like, I, I know what we're going towards, and it's the greatest female golfer in NCAA history. So, <laughs> Like, it is, but she'd also already had some other ones that maybe weren't the greatest, but had won several individual titles. It is so nice that Rose Zhang is, it is not like, you know, an Adley Rutschman coming out of Oregon State University. It's beautiful when a lesser school in terms of national consciousness like produces this star. This is someone coming into a place that's produced nothing but stars in its recent history and somehow eclipses them all. She is even able to, in 2022 this past year, in the final round of it as part of the mixed co-ed pair there in the fifth game, win the first ever big match for the Stanford Cardinal. And what I love the most about Walker is like the programs that she's left behind have also succeeded. Cal has four more appearances in the NCAA finals since she left. 
UC Davis is now headed by former star Demi Runas as the coach, and she has continued the legacy with two finals appearances since Walker left. She has come from Scotland across the way, and there's just this incredible dispersal of great golf spores that she, as this either fern or fungus, has spread to the wind and let scatter across the coast. The Ann Walker diaspora. Yes, indeed. Perfectly said. I want to end by saying this is a subject that I did not come into with a lot of information, that being both Ann Walker and the Pac-12 as a whole. Like, I, again, am the most college sports agnostic of the three of us, and there is so much I learned digging into the Cal-Stanford rivalry when it was rugby, the fact that it is the first sporting event where people did card stunts, and how it shows up in all of these other sports that make this undeniable culture that, as we started off saying, is in danger now. And Walker's team is going to be fine. Any team that is coached by Ann Walker, I am certain, is going to be fine no matter where they end up. But we will be worse off without the rivalry that helps fuel the career for her on both sides of it. And if it is indeed coming to an end, I can think of no better way to honor it than by honoring Anne with the recognition as the guy that she is. She's a, she's a hell of a guy. And, you know, it's, it's something that I'll say for Mitch as a pro, but I also need to say it for Anne. Like, I think one of the best things that a guy can do is to further the career of other guys. So to, to have this next level success as a coach as well, I mean, you know, guy recognized guy. <laughs> I recognize guy. And if we were to get into our larger discussion of these three, as you said, there's some stuff that Xavier missed with Bernard. And I think there's a couple things you missed with Mitch that I want to point out real quick. We talked about how Anne is a transplant. It is definitely, I mean, I think she bleeds Bay Area by this point, but is somewhat a transplant. And of course, when we're talking about someone who is a military kid moving around a lot, not necessarily home. The PNW, like Oregon and Washington, have become much of a home form because what I love is, has OSU, obviously, is the beginning and end. He also manages four different times during his minor league runs, both as a player and as a manager, to either be in the PNW with uh, the Eugene Emeralds and the Portland Beavers as a player, or to be in the Seattle program. Even if he's not in the PNW, he is a manager of two different Seattle teams in Modesto and Arkansas. So the fact that he is maintained at all time, I love that. But the number one thing, Diaz, that you missed, as a member of the 2012 Long Island Ducks, he is a teammate of Lou Ford. He is a teammate of Lou Ford. I did gloss over that. And I mean, far be it from me. I, I don't ever want to forget Lou Ford. It is our specific duty to remember Lou Ford. Listen, just if you want to hold it against me, that's fine. Just don't hold it against Mitch. No, I don't think I can hold it against Mitch. I mean, that association is a beautiful thing for him. Xavier, how do you feel about uh, Mitch and, and Bernard, if you want to make a, a further pitch for Legat? So I like the fact that in back-to-back weeks, we have talked about career minor leaguer who went to school on the West Coast and brought a school with no baseball history whatsoever to the College World Series. Shout out, Billy Bean. Uh, but I, I really like Mitch because I like just how much of his life has revolved around Oregon State. I mean, I like Bernard a lot, but to be honest, Bernard, you know, a lot of his competitions are international work. He's competing for Kenya or the United States. He was extremely dominant in those three to four years where he was competing for 
Washington State and is probably their most successful Olympian of all time. But he does not have the longevity at Washington State that Ann has at either Stanford or Cal or Mitch has at Oregon State. So I'm fine, like, thinking between those two. And it's also tough because they're both still doing stuff. They are both still active coaches. So if I pick one of them now and then the other one wins a title next year, I look like a dumbass. But I, I think I'm leaning more towards Mitch because Mitch is so Oregon State focused. There's no other pack loyalties there as much as, you know, we talked about Anne's feelings about Cal before she went to Stanford in the, the gray shirt. I'm still leaning towards Mitch right now. Now, to your preference for Mitch, saying that he is very, very thoroughly OSU. If I recall correctly, this was not an OSU category. This was a Pac-12 category. And Okay, that is fair. Since, that is and fair. since Ann Walker has been in the United States of America, she has been either at UC Berkeley, Stanford, or UC Davis, which in some sports does participate in the Pac-12. <laughs> what? Okay. They were in the Big West. Me, if you can tell me right now, without looking it up, what sports UC Davis is in the Pac-12 for, then I might have to switch my vote. Oh, I absolutely can't do that. I'm not going to try and, and make <laughs> uh, myself look like a fool. But uh, two Pac-12 schools, two of the remaining four, half of the Pac-4 <laughs> has Ann Walker as an all-time GOAT. She, right. she goes to the rich schools. Here's what I would say, and I'm not going to make this about classism as much as I could and as much as I'd love to, because eat the rich at all times. That is the official stance of this podcast. However, specifically speaking about the prestige of the programs that Ann Walker was involved in, Cal Golf was good before Ann Walker and will continue to be no, good Women's after Cal Ann Golf Walker. was not good before Ann Walker. Women's Cal Golf had never made a title appearance, and then they made six straight during her tenure as a player and coach. Stanford Women's Golf, only one of 36 athletic programs to have never won a championship before okay. she came. But then I, then I, I will make it about assertion. class. Then I will make it about <laughs> class because they had the resources to invest at their disposal. And Oregon State, we're talking 53 years between College World Series appearances. And then once Mitch gets behind the dish, they make it to the College World Series all three years with him as a starter. They win their first two championships. And if it wasn't for Adley Rushman's big tits, they would have never even gotten a third. So I think we need to recognize Mitch Canham's modest but very respectable tits that led that team <laughs> to two championships. I mean, but also, like, he is not the number one catcher in OSU history. He has won twice as many championships <laughs> as Adley Rushman. Adley Rushman has won infinitely more Golden Spikes awards. They've won equal amounts of all College World Series teams. There you go. Oh, this is so tough. I get that, like, that is a much more niche Pac-12 thing. And in many ways, that is because of the school. And, like, Wazoo and Oregon State University are just more niche schools. And I will say, as my last defense against this, I got no other pitches after this. I tried to defer to you guys to select the schools. Because I thought that would make it easier. And if what you're saying is by doing that, I automatically locked myself out of the ability to even sniff a win. Collusion. Collusion. That's all. It's collusion. No, no, um, you definitely didn't do that. I, this is a very tough one. I'm, it's you this time, Xavier. Diaz was the decider last week. And I know. he and I seem I pretty darn dug in. Mitch Cannon, 
He is great. If he goes in, he's great. I'm just sticking on Ann Walker's side. I was leaning towards Mitch, and then I think Diaz shot himself in the foot by starting to make an argument that James then thoroughly disproved, and then making an argument about rings. And James said rings. Have... James said rings before <laughs> I ever I, said No, rings. we absolutely so said So you're going to go on this? James <laughs> said rings. James said we love rings. And we then, do. We do. And Anne has more than he does. And then my head <laughs> All right. I'm going to have to go find some fucking like paraplegic that solved cancer to, to win again. You already so. used the paraplegic this year. That's all I got, apparently. Apparently, that's my only play. <laughs> I can bring up first two national championships in the history of a program, never catching before in his life, and pulling himself up by his bootstraps. All of that, and it doesn't matter because well, well, some well, Scottish D- person D- fucking ended D- up in a- We look at the stats. Season through season, I have the lowest win percentage of all, and I guarantee I haven't brought the worst, guys. I'm, I'm appealing to my own sanity at this point. <laughs> I fucking cooked up a banner this week. So what you're saying is you need to get better at this. I'm saying you need to vote better, Xavier. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Xavier, do democracy better. I'm feeling pretty good about democracy, to be honest. Uh, yeah, that's what the winners always say. It's true. And that's why I, I have to go with Anne because I can't support Diaz's uh, righteous indignation right now. But Diaz, I will say, you start all, you'll start off next week already with me leaning to be in your camp. Welcome, Ann Walker, to the Hall of Guy. <laughs> <laughs> that was the most angry recognition ever. You did start by firing shots at, like, the franchise player that I spent three years waiting to see debut in the major leagues. Listen, I, when I pander, I'm wrong. When I anti-pander, I'm wrong. Whatever I do, it's all good. Because I'm going to keep bringing great guys, whether you both want to vote for them or not. Well, whether we appreciate Diaz's guys enough, we sure do appreciate you all for joining us. And uh, we'd like to express some of those appreciations real quick to, of course, our producer Craig and all the coders behind him to our musical director, Don Ham for that lovely theme music. I would like to extend a special thanks to Ann Walker for responding to my email to clear up some biographical information about her. And if you heard this, I hope I did you proud. I didn't want to tell you guys that I had contact with her because I thought that would make you lean slightly towards it. Uh, yeah, but Ann you Walker, said that, thank you so much for contributing easier. to the show. I'm, I'm glad to know my ass would have been kicked even more thoroughly. That's, that's great. <laughs> Consolation. Well, did you try and DM it, DMing or emailing Mitch? That's what I Whatever thought. I say will be held against me, so I'm not going to say <laughs> anything. I refuse to participate in this court any further. Speaking of Discord, we do have one that you all can participate in, even if Diaz isn't. You can find the info for that at bit.ly slash remember that guy, all one word, all lowercase. Get the guys of the day there. We're firing bangers off every day. And yeah, that's all I got this week. Anything for you guys? Harry Kane to Bayern Munich deal has officially been agreed. Breaking oh, news okay. Podcast over a hundred million four year contract for Kane. Good friend Drew Sika is very depressed right now. Somewhere in the northeast of England, Alan Shearer is raising a pint right now. <laughs> and we raise a glass to you, dear listener, until we get to hang out with you yet again. But until then, I have been James. I've been the very special guest, Xavier. And I'm Diaz, and as FIFA president Gianni Infantino once said, today I feel guy. Oh no! No, 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 no.
Going to work sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. But yeah, I mean, yes. There was correct. another person in that building today, and then some other people. One other person? Only people that, like, I have to worry about seeing me not pay attention were walking in. So I was just, like, at, the, at a cubicle, like, the whole day, and it sucked.